Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. There is a growing trend in our culture today, a secularization of our culture. And one of the aspects of that growing trend is the reality of this group that has been identified as spiritual, but not religious. That trend has even been recognized by our, by our broader culture. Uh, these individuals claim a commitment to spirituality a commitment to some kind of spirituality in some aspect, but they do not identify with a church or any particular organized religious group. Folks, whether uh, you realize it or not, our culture is very quickly becoming a post-Christian secular culture. Now, depending on your age, that can be terrifying. Right. Or uh, depending again on your age, that can kind of be exhilarating. Right. This gives us more of an opportunity to engage people. Thirty years ago, you knocked on almost any door, especially down south and asked them if they were a believer. You know what they'd say? Yeah, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? In an increasingly post-Christian secular culture, people don't feel any compulsion at all to identify themselves as a Christian. And guess what that means? Now you can actually have a conversation. Now you can actually address the issue. Do you know Jesus? Well, before the answer was, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, right? Doesn't everybody that's a Christian know Jesus? Increasingly, the issue in our culture is how do we view God? How do we view Jesus? What about you today? How do you view God? What's your view of God? What's your view of Jesus? In truth, we all have one. That view is framed by a myriad of things, but we all have a perception about God. We all have a perception about Jesus. Now, as followers of Jesus, it's imperative for us first to have the right perception of our God, of our Savior and Redeemer. But then it's also critical that we understand how to engage our culture with that perception in mind. As they become increasingly secular, do we engage them with anger, with disdain? Do we separate ourselves completely from them and lock ourselves in our houses and stay as isolated as possible from them so we don't get any of those, how should we say, secular germs on us, right? How do we engage? Do we attack? Do we, do we go on the offensive as we engage them? This is, in some respects, the the lesson that we learn from Paul. And it, in truth, is fascinating to me the way Paul engages this really, really secular culture. And in truth, folks, to be honest with you, if you think it through, this culture is every bit as secular as ours is. It's every bit as secular. And so Paul still engages them with the gospel. And here's what I want you to see as we walk through this today. As believers, you and I, we must meet and wisely engage others where they are without compromising the truth. And you will see the lengths to which Paul goes to engage them where they are. Paul does not ask them to come to where he is and kind of catch up. Paul literally takes the truth of Scripture and sets it on top of their truth. He sets it on top of their philosophies and their ideologies. And he says, okay, now this is how we relate what is true to where you are. It is unbelievable. Now remember, as Luke writes this 
history of the early church. It's the second longest book in our New Testament. The follow-up to the first longest book, Luke's Gospel. Luke writes more of our New Testament than any other author, which in and of itself is fascinating because most of us would assume that was Paul, maybe John. They're pretty close. But Luke by far writes the most. And this second longest book is the ongoing account. As Luke says in chapter 1, verse 1, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, it now continues through the life and work of his apostles, his witnesses. And that's the theme. The theme is you will be witnesses when the Spirit comes on you. And that'll be beginning in Jerusalem, chapters 1 to 7. And then moving to Samaria and Judea, chapters 8 to 12. And then to the ends of the earth, chapter 13 to 28, right? There you go. You got the whole breakdown of the book right there. That's the theme, the focus, the purpose, all of it, right? So in this particular text, again, as we walk through this, don't miss this. As believers, you and I must meet and wisely engage others where they are without compromising what is true. So look at where Paul begins, and it's similar. It's a similar place that he begins in every single town he comes to. First thing we see, Paul reasoning with those in Athens, reasoning in Athens. Verses 16 to 20, the section that Daniel read for us as we begin. Again, uh, Luke, I, I, I love Luke. Luke can get us into a story in one verse and just give us all of this background info that just is amazing to me. But that's where he began. So now while Paul is waiting, remember they've taken Paul here and dropped him off because of Berea and Thessalonica. The Jews are worked up there and they want Paul out of there. Now, likely some of what Paul says to the Jews, he's recording, thinking about here in Athens and definitely in Corinth. It's believed he probably wrote First and Second Thessalonians while he's in Corinth. Later on, we'll get to that in chapter 18. But all of this is interconnected here. And while he waits for them in Athens, uh, Luke tells us his spirit was provoked. Uh, Paul was frustrated. He was not happy about the idolatry in the city. It's full of idols. Now, it is believed that Athens at this time probably had a a populace of about 5,000, the high end being 10,000. And in that city at this time, there was uh, recorded in some historical places, 30,000 idols. So three for every every member of the community, if there's 10,000, right? Six if it's five. That's a lot of idols, right? That is a lot of idols. And this is why Paul is burdened. It's important for us to understand, in some ways, the makeup of, of Athens. Athens is an intellectual city. It's very unique uh, in that regard in the ancient world. It's known for its great philosophers. You may have even heard of a few of these. Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Epicurus, Zeno, and those last two are important. We'll get to them in a minute. But arguably, it is the center of the intellectual world. And yet... Its prime was 500 years before Paul arrives. So this is a city living on, we used to be. We used to be this. And yet, in their minds, that's still who they are. It's the intellectual capital, and it's filled with idols and idolatry. Scene obviously disturbs Paul. Now, there's a couple reasons that it disturbs Paul. Number one, you've got to remember the focus, the perspective Paul would have had as he engaged this city. He's deeply committed to the reality of one true and living God, monotheism, one God. So Paul's burdened because they think there's more than one. That's, That's reason one. Number two, Paul would have viewed the idolatry of any kind as an abomination and... Part of that abomination, it's this stumbling block to mankind. It's a stumbling block to people. So Paul is burdened because idolatry prevents men from seeing their need or coming to God. Third, Paul was genuinely burdened for these people to know the one true and living God and his son, Jesus, through whom they could have real life. That's part of Paul's burden. 
you think about it, every idol in Athens demonstrated their hunger for God, their hunger to know God. But it also testified, visibly, tangibly, tangibly demonstrated their spiritual emptiness and, dare we say, ignorance of God. Paul follows up doing exactly what he does. Verse 17, he goes to the synagogue and he reasons. Now remember, we looked at this word last week. This word reasoned is used 10 times in Acts, 13 times in our whole Bible. It has the idea of explaining, speaking, talking about something, and then having the audience have the opportunity to come back and say, Well, I don't understand that. I don't see how that fits with this. What about this, right? Almost like a Q&A. Anyways, let's keep going, right? He does this in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and then he does it in the marketplace every day. And he does it in the marketplace with anyone that will listen. Now, remember, because of the intellectual, philosophical makeup of this city, There's these philosophically minded people that they're ready to go with anybody, right? They want to talk about whatever it is. Well, that's what we see in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, they were also conversing with him. Okay, so the Epicureans, they come from Epicurus, and the Stoics come from Zeno, and that is where they come from. Now, remember... There's more philosophical groups in Athens than those two. However, those two are the opposite end of the spectrum. Those two are on the opposite ends of of thought, if we could say it that way. And so in a sense, I think Luke wraps all of them together just by mentioning those two. Potentially, these are two of the most popular at the time. Maybe not. There's at least two others. We won't even go into all that, right? But these two specific groups. Now, the Epicureans, they're known uh, for their belief that God was unknowable. You could not know God. Thus, statue for the unknown God, right? You can't know God. They emphasized chance. Everything is kind of just up for chance. That's how life is and develops. And they were known also for their emphasis on in the enjoyment of pleasure. Stoics on the opposite end of the spectrum, they emphasized fatalism. Everything that's going to happen is going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. It doesn't matter if you think about it or try and make a different choice. You can't change it. What will be will be. That's it. This is the pagan Stoics. Uh, They emphasize, because of that fatalism, submission and endurance of pain. Why? Because you can't change it. You just got to endure it. You got to keep on. Virtue for them is sufficient for human happiness. And they believed in fulfilling your duty in reason. And they believed in pantheism. Pantheism is the acceptance of All gods, right? So the first ones didn't think you could know God. The second one's any God that has been identified as one. Yeah, we'll take it, right? So this is the spectrum that Paul is addressing. These two see the world very, very, very differently. And yet, they have this one thing in common. Their beliefs are hopeless. Their beliefs are hopeless, What hope do I have, right? Everything's already said. I can't change it. Or there's no no rhyme or reason to anything. Everything's by chance. Listen, both ideologies, philosophies have that in common. They are hopeless. And here's the truth. And listen carefully to me today. Many in our world, they live in the exact same hopeless place. Their beliefs, whatever they are, bring them no real hope. So they have nowhere to turn. I literally, I just saw an article this week that last year, suicides in the U.S. reached the highest number that has ever been recorded since records started being kept on that in 2022. Highest ever. 
according to that government data that was given out. Our culture is becoming increasingly secular, but with that, they're becoming increasingly hopeless. What do they have to cling to? There's nobody in charge. You can't know them if if there was, right? That's uh, the cultural mindset. Jesus, however, he is the hope our culture desperately needs, the same as this culture in Athens, and Paul knew it, and I hope you do. Jesus is the hope we need, right? So Paul, he's accused of teaching by both groups. Both these groups say, man, this guy, he is off, and they describe him uh, as they're talking about him. What is this babbler trying to say? And then he seems to be preaching foreign deities. Now, a couple of things. Number one, the idea of a babbler was this kind of guy that's, uh, you, you know, always on the move. And he's just picking up various scraps of information from here or there, seeming then to be knowledgeable and informed. Literally, they're saying, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. This guy, this guy isn't intellectual. This guy isn't philosophical. He doesn't get it. Right? That's accusation one. The second thing is, is, hey, he's trying to introduce other deities to us. The first deity is this kind of heroic figure as he describes him, and he is to be worshipped. And then there's this second figure, and again, commentators debate on this, but some believe that what they take from this, and the way Luke describes it, is that they're believing the resurrection is actually a person. Believe it or not, the Greek word anastasis, the word for resurrection, is also the name of a woman. Some, potentially, philosophically, they hear this instead as the personification of the afterlife. So in essence, I'm describing the afterlife in personal people terms, and I've given it this name anastasis. Either way, in their minds, they are confused. He's presenting us right, plural, two new deities, Jesus and Anastasis, right? And so because of that, they say, hey, this guy, we're going to bring him before the Oropagus. Now, the Oropagus is two things. It is a place. It's also a council. This is a council that met and conversed and made decisions. And if we could put it into today's vernacular, kind of a think tank in Athens, right? Imagine getting into that group, you know, you'd be big stuff. So this group, they are going to take Paul to this group, to this place, and he is going to speak. He's going to speak to this council. Now I want you to think for a moment, as we speak to others about Jesus, you and I must trust. We must rest in him for the outcome. You know, one of the hardest things about sharing your faith is somebody not responding the way they, that we hope they will. Right? I mean, have you ever talked to somebody about the Lord and, and it just seemed like they could not care less? And you think in your mind, maybe I shouldn't have said something. Maybe I shouldn't have talked to them. What I want you to observe is Paul's reaction to their response. How does this hit him? And part of what we have to understand is God calls us to faithfully speak to others about Jesus. Leave the results to him. You're not responsible for that. By God's grace, he is working in people's hearts and he will accomplish his purpose in their hearts. But he calls us to speak. That's it. So will we do it? We can learn much from Paul's address now to the Oropagus, and to really this larger Athenian audience, his message to this secular culture. First, the way he develops this is is just incredible. He understood the culture and understood how to interact with the culture. Now, what does that mean for you and I? We first need to get a master's degree, a doctorate degree in biblical studies, and then get a doctorate degree in cultural studies, and then we'll know how to engage the culture. No. All it means is this. Understand the culture you live in. Understand how people are wired around you. Understand what motivates them. You ever go to work and you listen to somebody talk around the water cooler? What do they talk about? That's what they're motivated by. If they talk about their kids and their soccer game all the time, guess what they're motivated by? Their kids, probably, and their soccer games. 
If they talk about football, guess what they're probably motivated by? Probably football. If they talk about their spouse, guess what they're motivated by? Hopefully, right? Their relationship with their spouse. If they talk about a boat that they'd like to have or that they do have, guess what they're motivated by? Folks, this isn't as hard as we think. What it does take is some care, concern, uh, observation on our part. The people around you, how are they wired? What are they motivated by? Paul understood that as he engaged this audience and engaged them in light of that. His conversation fits the speaking approach of the day. Now, this is very technical and we won't go into it. But there is a literal approach to addressing an audience in this time period. Paul walks right through it. There's four pieces. Paul walks right through it. The introduction, all the way to the conclusion, every part of it, which fascinates me. How how did Paul come up with that? It feels like to me on the spot. Did he have a day to prepare? Like, did he take notes with him? You know, if an iPad was around, did he take that? Did he talk to him from that? I mean, how did he remember this? God had prepared Paul uniquely to address this kind of issue. And what is fascinating, again, in a moment, the responses. Look where Paul begins, though, and we we already talked about this initially as we read it. Paul commends them for their religious pursuits. And in a sense, if you think about it, uh, reading one commentator in particular, he says, Paul offers this peaceful, conciliatory compliment, which would have been customary as you began to engage an audience or give some kind of oration. You're doing that uh, and, and trying to draw your audience in with that initial compliment. And yet, think this through for a moment. As believers and readers of this text, Paul uses a really unique word to describe them. You are extremely religious, right? That's how it's translated for us. That word is not used any other time in the New Testament. It's never used in the Old Testament. It's a really unique word. Do you know what else it can mean? Very superstitious. You people are extremely religious, right? And, and I don't know if Luke was with him or Luke had gone back with Timothy and, and uh, Silas. I don't know. But Luke's sitting there, and, and, and if Luke was sitting there, he caught it. You're also very superstitious, <laughs> right? You also got some weird superstitions going on here as he begins. And this is Paul's focus. There are many ironies that Paul uh, uses and twists in here throughout his, his sermon. He goes on. He says, second, I passed along and I observed all of these objects that you worship. And then he says, I found this one to the unknown God. Now, this is an interesting phrase. The word unknown is the word, the root word that we get our English word agnostic or agnosticism from. Right. I don't believe in God or I don't think you can know God. This is the idea of agnosticism. Paul, in a sense, acknowledges that. And as he points it out, in a sense, folks, he's acknowledging their ignorance. You're admitting you don't know God. You're, You're admitting you don't understand who he is. Again, you see that little bit of irony in there? You know, boy, you you guys could know him and you, you don't know him. The God you worship is unknown, however. He can be known, and I am proclaiming him to you today. This is Paul's proposition. I want you to think of it like this. It's almost like Paul was saying to them that day, Today, I want you to see with me as we walk through this, the God you worship as unknown can be known, and I'm proclaiming him to you. Folks, that proposition is important. It matters. That is what everything is going to be built on. You can know this God. And Paul is introducing this God to this audience. For some of them, likely for the first time. They had not thought of God like this before. Though they deemed, thought of themselves as unbelievably intelligent. right? And yet they don't know God. From there, Paul goes on to frame God. 
Paul goes on to discuss and give his argument regarding the nature of God and his interchange with man. Paul first sets God up as creator. Folks, do you understand? As Paul speaks to them, where does he take them? He doesn't take them to John. He doesn't take them to Isaiah 53. Where does he take them? Genesis 1. God is creator. God is the creator. God made you and he made me. That's it. And folks, listen to me. Increasingly in our culture, people are saying, come on. You believe in creation. You believe God created the world. That is so antiquated. And I'll say what I said a couple weeks ago. If you cut at creation, you are cutting at the very foundation of what it is to be a believer. Creation matters. Remember Hebrews 11 as we're walking through that. He gives us the hall of faith. But as he introduces us to the hall of faith, what does he say? And we believe that God created. That's the beginning. Before he gets to Abel, he says, we believe in creation. This is real, and this is where Paul begins. And if you look carefully, this, our scriptures are full of this reality. Our God is the creator. He made you. And because he made you, there are implications to that. Because he made you, you are culpable to him. You answer to him. Well, yeah, if I answer to somebody that made me and I don't want to, well, maybe let's undo the fact that they made me. Yeah, I don't believe that anymore. Well, now I'm not, now I'm not culpable to them. You don't have to believe it, but he did, and you are, right? I mean, this is what Paul's going to say in Romans 3. He did, you are, it is the reality. He keeps going. Not only is he creator, but he is going to move to God as redeemer through Jesus. And we'll get there in a minute. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul is confrontational throughout this, but it doesn't feel confrontational. Paul's confrontational in a very gentle way. And folks, listen to me. Our approach with people matters. Angry arguments do nothing for Jesus. Now... When you walk away, you may be really happy because you won the argument. Congrats. If you win the argument, you've already lost. That's it. You've lost. If that person shuts you down because you won the argument, that didn't help. That's not the point. Kindness and grace go much further in advancing the message of Jesus. And folks, we always have to remember that. Sometimes, even in our minds, we think something like the study of apologetics the defense of the faith, we think that's for the purpose of winning arguments. No, it's not. The point is to gently be able to and knowledgeably be able to answer questions that cause somebody to say, ah, I never thought about it that way. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Not to win an argument that they walk away from and say, I hope I never see that human again. No, that, that, that's, not, that's not the purpose, right? And Paul doesn't do that. Interestingly enough, Paul doesn't do that. So God, he's the creator. He's the creator of the world. He's the creator of mankind. He's the creator of everything that we need. If you look at the end of verse 25, he says, he himself gives to all mankind three things, life, breath, and what? Everything. What does he mean? Every single thing that you live or that you need to live and every single thing that you need for life to be sustained, God gives it. Folks, we may look at ourselves from time to time and say, man, I am a self-made person, right? I, I'm surviving by the sweat of my own brow. Well, you can think that, but God graciously gives you every single thing you have. And you know what you do as a believer? You look at those good things and you say, that's a good gift from God. James 1, right? That's a good gift from God because that's just who he is. He gives good gifts to his people, and even those who aren't. He causes rain to fall in the fields of an unbeliever the same as he does a believer. That's just because he's that good. So this is who God is. But in part, what Paul is emphasizing is that God doesn't need man and God wasn't made by man. God isn't created by man. 
God is not the figment of someone's imagination. No, God actually made you and your imagination, right? God made it all. He's the creator. So nothing about God resembles an idol. He is the self-sufficient one. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you in order to survive. You do need him. You you may not realize it all the time, but you do. And so do I. So God not only creates everything, he sustains everything. And he does so graciously because he is good, because he is kind. That's who he is. But Paul goes on. He says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Now. There's a lot that could be said here. I'm not going to say it here. I am going to say it in Q&A. Q&A is going to be very important because we are going to talk about the issue of race and ethnicity based on verse 26. And I want you to hear that. Uh, we, 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 it won't, we won't go long. But I want you to hear that because, folks, whether we like it or not, that is a major issue in our culture that we need to think biblically about. We need to think as believers, as followers of God, the right way about that. And so we'll look at that in a moment. What we know is, is that God created all ethnic groups, all ethnicity from one man, Adam. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter your country of origin, doesn't matter your skin color, doesn't matter. We all came from one man. One. And ironically, we came from one man twice, if you think about it, because when God destroyed the world, where do we all come from? Noah. Again, repeat. Right? We all came from one man. This is Paul's emphasis. Now, One of the things that's interesting about that emphasis is, is that Paul is presenting all of humanity as as coming from one. This is a confrontation to the Athenian idea of ethnic exclusivity. See, the Athenians thought in their minds, we're better than everybody else, right? Because of our ethnic origins, we're, we're better than all the other yahoos in the world, right? You ever meet somebody that thought that, you know? Unfortunately, that happens. It's not new. It's been happening since the dawn of humanity, right? Well, that's where they are. Well, this statement confronts that ideology. It confronts that perception, perspective. All the peoples on the earth, every ethnos, every people group should seek for God. Now, if you look at this in verse 27 as he goes on, He calls them to seek for God, and perhaps they'll feel their way toward him. Now, the word seek here is the idea of groping. It's the idea of a blind man in a room trying to find where he's going. And that's literally almost the way he describes it in that next phrase. Here are people, human beings, groping around in their ignorance. They don't know. They can't see. And yet... God in his grace is able to be found. If you will seek him, Paul says, the end of verse 27, you can, you may. It is possible for him to be found. Are you seeking the Lord? Even as a believer, are you seeking the Lord every day? Are you seeking to know him? Are you seeking to understand who he is and all he's accomplished on your behalf and all that that means for you? Is that true in your life? It it should be. It, by God's grace, it can be. Do you know the Lord? Paul's next comment addresses the fallacy that God doesn't care about his creation. So remember, the idea for a lot of these people is fatalism or chance. But what both demonstrate is whoever made all this couldn't care less about it. And yet Paul addresses that specifically. God cares about you personally and individually. He goes on and he says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Think that through for a moment. He is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. He cares about every single individual in this room today, even as sometimes we split and drive all over the country, right? 
Some from South Carolina. I think we have somebody from us in South Carolina today, right? Even as we are divided, God cares for every single one of us. Paul presents an idea that is so foreign to both of these philosophical ideologies. They're both probably thinking in their mind, what? That is ludicrous. And then Paul uses a common quote idea from the culture. He says in that first line, in him we live and we move and we have our being. So the origin of this quote is unknown, but it was a popular common mantra of the day. And likely it's edited here by Paul or Luke. It's kind of framed for us in light of the popular thought of the Greeks. And the point is simply this. It's a biblical reference to God's act of creation. Through whom, or through him, human beings came into existence, who are thus, as uh, coming into existence through him, both dependent on him and close to him. And here's the beauty. Paul expresses that in their Hellenistic Greek philosophical mindset. He literally takes their words and uses it to describe God's presence, creative work, sustaining work in a way that they grasp it. You see the connection? Paul understood his audience and he actually used their words to describe God. Look at this, he goes on. As even some of your own poets, and he's quoting a popular poet here, we actually have the poem, we know the poem, we know the line this actually comes from. The poem is actually originally about Zeus and about humanity's share in Zeus's divine nature. Paul turns it and uses it in relation to God. He says, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul doesn't say Zeus is a false god. Zeus isn't real. Paul doesn't address any of that. Paul literally just takes the line from the poem and he turns it and says, hey, in truth, we really are all God's creation. We come from him. We share with him. We share the divine, remember Genesis, the divine image of God. It's part of creation. So yeah, you're right. We do share this divine image nature. We are his offspring. And now Paul starts to make the application. He says, so because we're his offspring, verse 29, we ought not to think the wrong way about divine beings like making a little gold statue or making a little silver idol or making a little stone idol, an image that is formed by art, by, by us, right? And our imagination. Listen, Paul goes on, verse 30. The time for ignorance is up. The time for ignorance is up. The time for you to pass this off as it's okay and it doesn't matter, that time has come to an end. Now, there's much debate that goes into verse 30. What is it that Paul is saying? Is he saying everybody in their idolatry is is, uh, forgiven of that? Up until this time. No, the point is, is that despite the ignorance of this group, which think that through for a moment, the times of ignorance, (laughs) Paul, Paul literally says, listen, the time for you guys to be deceived by gold and silver and rocks, that time's up. I mean, Paul acknowledges that you see the twist of irony there. The time for ignorance, your ignorance, that time has come to an end. And the irony is at the end, the response, the first one is mockery. And yet Paul in this states to them, how ignorant is it of you to make a stone statue and worship it as if it's real or can accomplish anything? How ignorant is that? In a sense, that's Paul's point. This statement is not a statement of universalism. It is a statement that God has with graciously, he has withheld the full weight of his judgment. He has withheld the full consequence, the full pouring out of his wrath, and that time is past. The time to look past this sin and give grace, that's done. This specific season of ignorance regarding who God is, that time is up. 
And now, Paul says, now is the time for what? Repentance. What does Paul call them to? Listen very carefully. Paul does not leave them wondering, what do we do? Paul clearly states, you must repent. You must turn from your idolatry to Jesus alone. That's Paul's call. Repentance is essential for a right relationship with God. It is essential for all people everywhere. You must repent of your sin and turn in faith to Jesus. Listen to me. Not, that's not an idea. That's an action. You must do that. That's what Paul calls them to. He goes on in verse 31 to describe judgment. The judgment day is coming. Jesus will function as the judge of all. That is the reality. God's already confirmed that. Why? Because he raised him up from the dead. So the issue for us today is this. Do you know Jesus? Do you truly know Jesus? Here's a follow-up. Does he know you? Does he know you? The thought struck me a year ago, a year and a half ago, as I thought about that question that I ask us all the time. Do you understand Matthew 7, when Jesus talks about the judgment, he says, many, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, calling out his name as if they know him. But what will he say to them? I never knew you. Listen to me. You can claim to know him. Does he claim to know you? Are you ready to meet him? Folks, that is what life is about. Our life as human beings on this planet is not about accumulation. It's not about comfort. It's not about what I want. Folks, it is about meeting the Lord and preparing to live with him forever. Are you ready? Are you ready? That readiness begins with, do you know him? Does he know you? Paul goes on in his conclusion, and he wraps that up with raising Jesus from the dead. We've talked about this numerous times, but that is God's affirmation of Jesus. That is the confirmation that this was right, that the work is done, it's accomplished, sins can now be forgiven through Jesus. That work is complete. That's the confirmation. And listen to me. Remember when we talked about the resurrection? That's why it matters so much. The resurrection is the stamp by God. This is real and it is done and it is enough. That's it. It's all we need. Jesus, right? So now Luke transitions us to the response. And the responses are fascinating. There are three. We get the first two in verse 32. Look at what he says. So now when they had heard these things, some mocked. That's it. That's all Luke tells us. Some mocked. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but if you've ever stood in front of a group and talked to them, and then afterwards somebody comes to you and mocks you for what you said in that, that, that's not the most fun thing. When I was a kid, my dad was a pastor, and sometimes he would say something funny in church, and we'd come home, and we'd say, Dad, what you said, that was really funny. And we'd all laugh for a while. And you know what? Now I go home, and they do that to me, and I think, man, I don't like this. Right? I feel bad for Dad, because we we, we did that more than we should have to poor Dad, right? That's exactly what this group does. They mocked Paul. Now, in part, they mocked Paul because the Greeks didn't believe a bodily resurrection was possible. They didn't think it could happen. Now, think about this. The Corinthians would have been Greeks as well. Remember 1 Corinthians 15? 58 verses on what? The resurrection. I think that's why Paul hit it so hard with them. Right? That was a really big issue for them. That was a big hurdle for them. And Paul says... Absolutely the resurrection can and will and did happen. You'll be raised just like Jesus was raised. It's real. Believe it. Right? So first they mocked. And likely that was the nature of their mockery. That was ridiculous. Intellectually impossible. It doesn't happen. So they mocked him. Some said, well, we'll hear you again about this. Now, some have suggested that they said, we'll hear you again about this. Why? Well, it's a good debate. It's a good point of conversation. It was interesting. It was entertaining. 
It's not that they were deeply committed to hearing more, though they could have been. I think both are possible. But both have this response, mockery and kind of laissez-faire. I could take it, I could leave it, but hey, you were kind of entertaining, let's do it again. What's interesting to me is what Luke puts in the middle of the third response. Look what he says, all of verse 33. So Paul went out from their midst. That's it. Now, I don't know about you, but you hope when you speak to somebody, uh, especially at, at a level like this, the best thing is when you see in people's eyes, oh, I got it. That makes sense. I don't know if you've ever spoken to a group. Uh, right? Even your own kids. Sometimes you're speaking to them and you can tell nobody's at home right now. It's just they are gone. They're somewhere else. And that's frustrating. And if you're a parent, sometimes you'll say, hey, hey, are you with me? And, and sometimes it brings them back. And then sometimes, you know, you, you just know they're gone. Right. So Paul, imagine in some respects you can feel it as he walks away. Mockery. Hey, yeah, we'd love to hear you again. Paul leaves. This is where. Luke kind of hangs us for a moment, right? You can feel the weight. Look at verse 34. It's not where it ends. Look at the third response. But some of the men, two things, joined him and believed. And then he gives us a couple of who that was. Among them is Dionysus, the Areopagite. Now think, think, think about that for a minute. You got this council of intellectuals. You got this Athenian think tank. One of them believed. One of them believed. And what I love about this is this. Many times for us as believers, as we engage people, our thought is this. If I can get them to pray, then it's done. It's all, it's all done. If I can get them to pray. What I want you to observe in Acts is that's never the goal. You'll never see it once in any spot in all of Scripture. You know what the goal is? Join him and believe. That's the goal. And folks, let me tell you this, honestly. The mark of a genuine believer is whether they join us. You can tell me you've led a thousand people to the Lord. If no one ever shows up, well, I'm glad you're talking to people and I'm glad at some point they're yielding to whatever you're asking them to do. But they are not joining us. And part of me wonders if they're genuinely believing, right? That's what happens here. They believed and they join Paul. They come alongside him. Almost the idea is as disciples, as followers to increase their learning. The second one is Dionysus and she is a lady. A Greek woman, or excuse me, sorry, the second one is Damaris, and she is the Greek woman, and then other Athenians as well. And so what's fascinating is, are the people that Luke records. He records this high up guy, and then he records this Greek woman. We don't know whether she was high society. Some argue that she was. Some argue she, she may have just been a common lady, and Luke puts her in there because she is a Greek woman. Maybe she knows, Right? The one that Luke's writing to. Right? Maybe she knows him. And that's why she's included. Whatever the reasoning, the third response is belief and action. It is belief and following. Listen to me. God is still at work today. Just as he was in Paul's day. God is still bringing people to faith in him. And what I want us to remember and consider is sometimes as believers, we think in our minds a biblical worldview, it can't really stand up on the stage of ideas in our secular culture. Folks, that is not true. A biblical worldview can actually stand with and ultimately will surpass every worldly idea. Every single one. Because the truth is, they all come and go. And they come in variations here and there. But you know what one always hangs around? This biblical worldview. A biblical Christian worldview has been around for 2,000 years since Jesus and Paul and Peter and the apostles and the first century church. God's ideas will not be undone by the inferior ideas of our culture. And we need to believe that. And we can talk with 
confident grace to people about that. We don't have to get exercised because they don't believe the right thing. We don't have to get frustrated because they don't understand. We don't. We can rest in the reality that our God knows and is in control and he is at work. So as believers, we must meet and wisely engage others where they are without compromise. A now famous book, The Case for Christ, written by Lee Strobel. In the introduction, he offers the ultimate motivation for his search for answers about the historic Jesus. In a section within the introduction that he has titled Answers to or for an Atheist, he states this. It wasn't a phone call from an informant that prompted me to re-examine the case for Christ. It was my wife. He goes on and he says, I was so surprised, even fascinated, by the fundamental changes, the transformation in her character, in her integrity, in her personal confidence. Eventually, I wanted to get to the bottom of what had prompted these subtle but significant shifts in my wife's attitude. Folks, do you understand the admission that book goes on to investigate all these various technical, in some ways philosophical ideas for 10 chapters? But do you understand where that search began? His wife accepted Jesus and was different. Is that the impact that you make as you engage others around you? They are different, not weird. They are different. There is something unique. There is a grace, a kindness, a compassion that I have not seen before. Is that what people get out of engaging with you? First of all, that's not possible if you don't know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, if you are not a believer, that's the first step. Trust him. If you're a believer, God can and will use you to graciously speak into the lives of others. Is he doing that? He can. He can. Trust him. Speak and don't be afraid of mockery. Don't be afraid. You have no idea how God will use that. By God's grace, let's speak to others with grace and compassion and knowledge that comes from him.